and standing out of devotion for God's Word, which is both lovely and life-giving, and turn in it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, is where we will be together this morning in our sermon study. If you do not have a Bible in front of you, it's always useful to have it in front of you as we examine God's Word together, so we would invite you, if you would, please use one of the blue Bibles that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 8. 163. It's our normal practice uh, here at Redeemer to just walk through books of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse, passage by passage. And since about Thanksgiving of last year, we've been slowly but surely making our way through uh, Luke's gospel. And one of the great reasons to walk through a gospel from start to finish is you get a full portrait, a full picture of who Jesus Christ is. And sometimes you run into texts that may be a little bit harder in terms of the word of warning that Christ has for his people because not only are the gospels full of his sayings of salvation, but even his words of warning, those of which we will even hear in our text this morning as we finish chapter 13. So we're going to look at together verse 22 through 35. And so kids, as I read the text in just a second, I would urge you to consider what Jesus has to say by way of warning, warning to those who are listening. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to us through his beloved Son. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we bow before you now and come to your word knowing that it alone can show us the forgiveness of sins that we all need. 
It alone can present unto us the truth that a king has come, that a savior has been crucified, that he was buried, that he rose again, and now ascends, has ascended on high, and now speaks to us by his word and spirit that we might know him. So, Father, help us to love him this morning as we come to this text. Give us hearts and minds that are eager and full of attention and affection for Jesus Christ. Help me to preach, as your word says I must, with, with clarity and with courage and, uh, and with compassion. Help us to hear. Earnestly this morning, recognizing that the door of salvation is open, uh, but it will close. And so help us to enter in, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. General John Sedgwick was a graduate of West Point, subsequently became a school teacher, and then by the time of the outbreak of the Civil War, he was enlisted in the Union forces as one of Ulysses S. Grant's most beloved generals. So by 1864, he and his troops were near Wilderness, Virginia, building fortifications in Sedgwick, woke up one morning to inspect his lines, to inspect the fortifications that uh, they were building. And not long after he arose and was standing about and walking about, Confederate sharpshooters and snipers began to try to pick him off. And his men that were around him at this time, they dropped and ducked out of fear. And Sedgwick boldly and, and bravely began to even say to his men, What? Men? Dodging this way for single bullets? What will you do when they open fire along the whole line? I'm ashamed of you. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Supposedly, he did that three different times, saying more or less the same thing about an elephant at this distance, when after the third time, a bullet hit him, and he died. It's dangerous, isn't it, to presume. It's a danger, presumption that is on full display even in our text this morning. Because if you wanted to write like a main idea over our passage this morning, it's a warning. Don't presume you belong in God's kingdom. Jesus, if you've been with us in recent weeks, has been talking about this kingdom that he came to inaugurate. Oh, we saw last week how on a Sabbath day he was teaching in the synagogue and he healed a woman of her disability. And we said that was a visible manifestation of the kingdom that Christ began. And then if you just glance up to the few verses before our text, verses 18 through 21, we saw two tiny little parables, these pictures about Christ's kingdom that was coming. He wanted to make sure to correct our notions about what this kingdom was going to be like. And we said those parables showed us that Christ's kingdom is powerful, it's pervasive, and it often proceeds imperceptibly throughout the entire world. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, you've noticed how in some ways, as Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem, he has ramped up his warnings against the self-righteous religious leaders and religious crowds that he so often comes across in his teaching and ministry. And he does the exact same thing in our text today. From chapter 12, even to the beginning of chapter 13, he's dealing with what he's calling religious hypocrites who are presuming who are are assuming that they belong in his kingdom. And what he's going to say, once again, with increasing force, is don't presume you belong in the kingdom. So the key question that he is answering for us, but also asking unto us, is will you be saved? Will you be in his 
kingdom. And students, what you need to know is the text is pointing even further to, if you answer that question or those questions of, yes, I will be saved, I, I will be in the kingdom. He wants to press on you this morning by his spirit to answer the next question of why. Why is it that you're going to be saved? Why is it that you will see me and dine with me in my kingdom? Because the great danger facing so many people throughout the ages is presuming that they will be invited in. When in reality, Jesus says, the door will be slammed shut before they ever cross the threshold. So what we want to see this morning is this text in three simple headings. And first of all, we're going to look at Christ's call to seek his salvation in verses 22 through 30. So notice how Luke sets up the scene for us again in verse 22. He tells us that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now children, you may remember, uh, back at the end of chapter 9, we saw that Jesus, the old language was he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And ever since then, he's been journeying towards his death, his murder, his execution at the hands of these religious leaders in Jerusalem. But we know he's not just going straight there. He's kind of darting around the area, making stops along the way in villages and other towns, often teaching and ministering and healing and exercising demons. And somewhere along the way, notice verse 23, someone asks a question. They say, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And maybe you've answered or asked, I should say, such a question before. Will the majority of people in the world that have ever lived be saved? Or will it just be a minority? And you might even think that such a question is just mere religious speculation that's not really worth anything. It's like going to the state fair and coming across a booth that has this large jar of marbles and you're asked, hey, if you can guess how many marbles are in that jar, then you're going to win the prize. And maybe this is what the person is asking of Jesus. It can sound even to some minds today somewhat silly to ask such a question. But what you need to know in that original context in which this writing comes to us, it was quite normal for rabbis of the day to debate and discuss the extent of salvation. And of course, the spectrum was represented. Some people said it was a very exclusive salvation. In other words, yeah, it's only a few that will be saved. Some said it was an inclusive salvation. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to be saved. But on the whole, what you would want to know is at this time in Jewish culture, most rabbis would say almost all Israel is going to be saved and pretty much everyone else isn't. Even their great document, the Mishnah, said all of Israel will have a share in God's kingdom. That's a direct quote. And so Jesus, as he's prone to do, when people ask him questions, notice as the text continues, he doesn't answer it directly. But he does get to the heart of it. Look what he says in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. So I want you to see a couple things from verse 24, this call of Christ. First, it is an earnest call. And you can circle that word strive. Now students, the Greek word for this is agonizomai. Does that sound like any English word we use? Agonizomai. Agonize. It paints a picture of a, a soldier in military combat, an athlete in earnest competition, showing us that Christianity very much is a, is a do-or-die resolution kind of religion in ways that we might not realize. The gospel is both gift and demand. We read earlier from 
the little letter of Jude, which begins by saying, you are kept in Christ Jesus. But then simultaneously, he'll later command, keep yourselves in Christ Jesus. There's a gracious gift to salvation. You can only enter, Jesus says, because he says, as we read earlier also, from John's gospel, I am the door. You can only enter if he opens the door, but you must earnestly strive, agonize even, he says, to enter into that door, and we'll see why he even uses the language. We'll see why in a few more minutes. You need to see it's an earnest call. It's also an exclusive call. He says what? The narrow door. Uh, Do you not know that we live in a culture today that is so earnestly broadening a door that Christ always said was a narrow And what you need to understand, students, especially you, need to understand this is you might soon be going into a university setting, a college setting that wars against the exclusivity of Christ that will say that Christianity is a narrow-minded religion. You might just respond, yes, it's a narrow-door religion. The house of salvation that Jesus is picturing here is, is a house with only one narrow door. There's not a large double door at the front, a revolving door in the back, multiple side doors and a garage door that's quite large on the side and multiple windows on every story through which you can get in as long as you have enough gusto. There is one narrow door. It's an exclusive call, but it also isn't an easy call. Look at how verse 24 ends. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And what Jesus is doing here, again, understand the context. What he is doing here is undercutting the presumption of the Jews of his day that the share of the kingdom automatically belonged to them. Theirs was a a religion we've already seen, a religion without repentance. That's the beginning of chapter 13. Theirs was a religion without regeneration, new birth. And Jesus says there are many who will want to enter, who will seek to enter even, is the verb he used, and will not be able. And so we want to ask the question, why not? Why not? Well, look at how Jesus continues in verse 25 through 27, continuing but somewhat switching this analogy and metaphor with a door. He says, when once the master of the house has risen, And shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you'll begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Do you see the assumption, the presumption? We know you. We heard you. We, we saw you. I don't know who you are. Something of a modern day correlation might be is how many people friend others on Facebook. Uh, you, you may know that some of the most famous preachers in our country and teachers of God's word have these Facebook pages with thousands upon thousands of friends. These are people that have maybe seen them, heard them teach in person. Numerous times or maybe innumerable times they've listened to them declare God's word and God's truth through streaming sermons or lectures online. But if that person was to go up to that preacher or teacher's door later this afternoon and knock on it, wouldn't you be quite sure that that preacher or teacher would look through the people and say, I have no idea who you are, friend. 
And Jesus is saying the exact same thing is going to be true of many of his hearers. We heard you. We saw you. We ate with you. We drank with you. I don't know who you are. Why? Because you haven't repented of your sin. You haven't turned from it and trusted in me alone. And to make sure, of course, that they get the seriousness of it, look at how he continues. They're going to be cast out. Depart from me, he says. Look at verse 28. In that place where they're going to be cast into, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in God's kingdom, but you yourselves cast out. The nation of Israel at this time presumed that they were going to see God's kingdom. They simultaneously presumed that pretty much all Gentiles were going to be judged unto hell. That it was a Gentile problem, God's eternal judgment, not their own. I once had a friend who was preaching the gospel and ministering evangelistically in the Middle East. One afternoon he was seated uh, with three Muslim men uh, for some sort of drink, trying to share Christ with them. And eventually one of the uh, Muslim men sat back in his chair to this man who was actually converted out of Islam. And he said, you mean to tell me that I'm going to go to hell if I don't trust in Jesus Christ? My friend said, yes, that's what I believe. And this man stroked his beard and said, well, well, don't you understand? I'm an Arab Muslim. That hell is for non-Arabs. God's judgment is for non-Israelites. That's not our problem, Jesus, is what the crowd would have said. But you see how he depicts it in verse 29? You will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These covenant patriarchs. You will see the prophets, the covenant lawyers that came to sue God's promises unto his people to try to lead them to faith and repentance, and yet you never turned, and so what will you get instead? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless we think that we're better off. Do you not know how often evangelical Christians, professing Christians today, might say, well, God's judgment is their problem it's not mine. Well, we have received the sign of, of baptism, this covenant sign. We have dined with the Lord at His covenant meal. We have devoted ourselves to keep the Lord's day holy. We have lifted our voices in praise and prayer unto Him. We have read His word earnestly. And what Jesus may yet say is, all of that doesn't mean that I know you. And you really know me. For Jews, hell was a Gentile problem. But look what Jesus says about Gentiles in verse 29 and 30. And people will come from east and west, and from north and south, and recline at the table in God's kingdom. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You see, Jesus once again talking about this great reversal that comes with his kingdom. Those who are forgotten and forsaken, downcast, dejected, downtrodden. Salvation belongs to them. Not the exclusive few of the elite. Not those that think just because they're in the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they'll be saved. And of course, it's a fulfillment, isn't it? Of all these rich Old Testament prophecies, the ingathering of the Gentile nations into God's kingdom. And students, kids, look down again at verse 29. How does, how does Jesus describe salvation? And verse 29. It's an international banquet 
in God's house. Blessing, communion, fellowship, joy, delight in God's family is what belongs those or is given to those who strive to enter through the narrow door. So see how Jesus has just turned the question of verse 23 all around, hasn't he? The question is, will the saved be few? And what he has just done is said, will the saved be you? Seek Christ's salvation. Secondly, love Christ's determination. Look at verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, we don't have any idea what the motivation was of these Pharisees for getting Jesus out of town. Maybe it was sincere. Trouble is on the way, Rabbi, and you need to get out of here. I think it's much more likely that they just want him off their front steps. They want him out of their streets. In some ways, of course, they're eventually going to collude with Herod, with the rulers there in Judea for Jesus' death and execution. But Jesus says he has something else to do. Kids, I wonder if you remember the last time you went on vacation. Maybe you flew there. Maybe you drove there. Maybe you took a cruise there. And I bet the week prior to your vacation, maybe weeks prior to vacation, you suddenly began to just think about that destination, where you were going. It was ever-present before your mind. With each passing hour, it seemed to get bigger and bigger in your mind. Uh, What you need to see in verse 31 is once again the truth of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. Because in the same way, of course, his destination wasn't a destination with rest and relaxation. His destination was a, a date with death. He can't stop thinking about Jerusalem and where he is going. Look what he says in verse 32. Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. And I finish my course. This phrase, today, tomorrow, and the third day, is something of a Hebrew idiom for a short length of time. And even the language of, I finish my course, is almost identical to what Jesus will eventually say in John's Gospel, chapter 19. Tetelestai, it is finished. He has a destiny date with death and is going to get there. Look at verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So understand the sweep of what Jesus is saying. He has a destiny date with death. He knows he is the true and better prophet. He knows Jerusalem kills prophets. He knows that he must get to Jerusalem in order to die. Such is his determination to save sinners like you and me. And I hope you know that there's always a temptation from our enemy to distract us off the path of the cross, just as it was even for Jesus, right? To to not go to his day of death, to do something else, call down a legion of angels to rescue him from the anguish and affliction that awaited him. This weeping and gnashing of teeth that he would feel on the cross, do something else, was the temptation. And how often it is also isn't it in our church culture? Do something else than preach a crucified Savior, dead, buried, and risen for sinners. 
Do something else than concentrate on the cross of Jesus Christ. Do something else than communicate the worth and the value of a bloody Savior. But concentration, fixation upon the cross is to be our delight, isn't it? What determination that the Savior had to go to Calvary to die in the place of anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Him. Are you seeking Christ's salvation? Are you loving His determination? I want you to now see if you are hearing Christ's lamentation in verse 34 and 35. I suppose in ways you may have not realized before, you may have looked upon a painting called The Head of Christ, which was painted in 1940 by a guy named Werner Salman. It's a painting that has been reproduced almost a billion times in the years since. And recently I read an art critic who described it in this way. The Christ in Salman's portrait is perfectly calm. He looks to one side with a steady and upward gaze. His silken hair flows to his shoulders. His smooth, radiant face is tanned to bronze. He looks alert and athletic, yet he does not betray any obvious emotion. His lips are closed, keeping what he feels in the deep recesses of his heart. But the Gospels paint a, a fuller picture, don't they? Do you know of the times in which Jesus' heart overflows? It's as though this mention of Jerusalem in verse 33 overflows into this heartfelt anguish and lament and longing for Jerusalem's salvation. Look at, look at verse 34. He cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Even one commentator writes on this verse, Jesus' turbulent lament over Jerusalem is the result of his compassion being met by a stubborn countercurrent of human rejection. Are you receiving Christ unto your joy and salvation? But are you or are you rejecting Christ unto your everlasting damnation? And see something of his tenderness here. You see this, this metaphor he's using? I would have. I long to gather your children together as a hen under her feathers. It's this picture that's all throughout the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms. We sang one in Psalm 91 tonight. There were tender compassion. God and his son will, will take their, their people, his people under the wings, wings of refuge and, and safety, but they were not willing, so hard-hearted were they towards Jesus Christ. And so you're to see something about the nature of Christ's compassion in this text. You want to know that Christ's compassion knows no limit when it speaks to its depth, its quality, but it does have a limit when it speaks to time. It will eventually run out if you continue to reject this king. Look at verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. Now students, look at that verb. And if you can jump into grammar school for a minute, pay attention to the tense. It's not your house will be forsaken. It's not your house could be forsaken. It's not your house would be forsaken. What is it? Is forsaken. 
And it would finally fall upon them, I think, in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed and sacked by Rome and the temple was overthrown. And he continues to say, look at the end of verse 35, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure what his prophecy is talking about there. It could be his soon-to-happen triumphal entry when they would cry out Hosanna in the streets. It could be his pending eventual return at the end of the ages. And whichever it is that Jesus is talking about here, the point of application and examination is the exact same. Will you see him when he returns? Are you seeing him now with the eyes of faith? Or are you presuming, as many in his crowds were, that you belong into his kingdom, yet have never truly closed with Jesus Christ? and entered through him who is the narrow door. On Friday of this week, I was home with the children. Emily was working at the hospital, and somewhere in the course of the morning, I heard one of our toilets running. And I went to, you know, jiggle the handle or whatever it was, and found out that the bathroom door was locked. You know, one of the kids had locked it somehow, and then closed it with a locked door, and course I couldn't find the little key that you're supposed to get in there to to unlock the door and so I thought for myself because I am not a tool centered you know kind of guy when it comes to handiness at home how am I going to open this door to make sure that we don't have water getting ready to flow out of the toilet and eventually it dawned on me and I was honestly quite impressed with my own wisdom if I just pulled the doorknob off so I went and got a drill pulled two screws out undid the latch and got in What our text is saying is you can't do that with salvation. When the door closes, it is locked. And what you need to see from our text as we begin to close is just two main realities that I think we're meant to see from Christ's teaching and even his ministry in our passage. The first is Christ demands boldness in entering his door of salvation. Christ demands boldness in entering his door of salvation. Of salvation, And by that we mean urgency, we mean earnestness, we mean striving and agonizing to get into that door. If you think of the fullness of the picture Jesus has before the crowd's there, it's as though he's standing with the door open. And I hope you have an understanding of God's word and the preaching of Christ that right now, before the eyes of your heart and the mind of your soul, he's got that narrow door open. But so often, isn't it true that people just loiter about on the front porch? Hey, when I'm done with this stuff, I'll go ahead and go in. And Jesus is saying, no, that door may shut in a moment's notice. Enter now. With boldness is what he is saying. So you may have been in an airport before. You're waiting in your seat at the gate to to enter and board your plane. And then inevitably, if you are in airports enough, you see someone tearing through the terminal. Bags flying behind them. You know, hair whipping about, no concern whatsoever with what people are observing as they just manhandle their way through the terminal. And of course, they're on their way to get through that door before it closes. Such is our life called to in Christ. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised the next minute. We're not promised anything other than Christ is the way of salvation. And if you turn from your sin, if you trust in him, if you come to him in simple faith, then you'll find that door open unto you in Jesus Christ. So it calls, Jesus is demanding boldness 
in entering his door. But I want you to see secondly, also from the end in his lament, Jesus displays brokenness for those who won't enter the door of salvation. I'm sure many of you have had the experience I've had. If you observe someone that's in mourning, someone that's in grief, someone that's in difficulty, and they're crying. You can't help sometimes tears just coming to your own eyes. And sometimes I do think when we see Christ portrayed in the Gospels unto us, we're meant to see as much as his, we need to hear his corrections, sometimes we need to see and hear his crying. Maybe you're in here this morning and more than hearing the terrors of judgment if you don't enter in. What you need to see are the tears of Christ over lost sinners. You know, I was uniquely challenged and even convicted on this point this week as a minister of the gospel commissioned to preach Christ and labor for the salvation of souls. How few tears fall down my eyes for lost people. Do you not wonder if maybe something of an evangelistic revival might flood into our hearts if we simply pray to God, help me to be broken over one lost soul this week? William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, once came across a few evangelists that he had trained and was sending out, you know, to preach Christ and bring people to the Lord who alone can save. And they were expressing their discouragement. They were expressing their frustration. Hey, we're trying everything to get these people to come to Jesus and and nothing is working. And William Booth said, try tears. Thomas Watson, who's a well-known Puritan, once wrote a book called A Godly Man's Picture. And it's got a long Puritan title about sketching out the character of a godly person with a scripture pencil. But if you get to mark number nine of a godly person, the title is, a godly person is an evangelical weeper. Now what he has in mind there is not this wimpy, whiny, and weepy Christianity, but a Christianity that laments lost souls. A Christianity that longs for them to close with Christ. Preachers and elders and church leaders who are marked by a broken weakness that leads them to love and long for people. Not to presume that they belong in the kingdom, but to actually close with Christ in faith and repentance. So don't presume today that you belong in Christ's kingdom. Examine your heart. Have you closed with him? I wonder in what ways even the Spirit might right now be exhorting some of you to boldness in entering that door of salvation. How many others of us may he be exhorting to be broken for those who do not enter that door of salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the incredible love of Jesus Christ that knows no end, that abounds in incomprehensible lengths and heights and breadths and width for us. Father, we confess that we are so often eager to boldly pursue other things in this world that we do not even think to enter the door of salvation. I do pray for those in here this morning that may realize through Christ's word and even his spirit that they have presumed upon his grace. They have presumed upon your mercy and have not truly entered in.
So let them even now, by the Spirit, know that it is your kindness that leads them to repentance. That the door is open and it is Christ alone that can save. So help us, we pray, to come to him even now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.